Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Friday, May 15th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to discuss what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serretta, and joining me on today's podcast, Slash Film Managing Editor, Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor, Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer, Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer, Swatran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. So, Brad, you were not here last week, but we're going to hear what you've been up to in this week's water cooler, so that's exciting. Uh, let's start with uh, what we've been doing. I I left the house, guys, and not to just go to the grocery store or walk the dogs. This past weekend, I went to the dog beach with my dogs uh, in Kitra. We drove to Huntington Beach to take the dogs to the beach because I, I had a friend who went and said that it was, like, empty. So I was feeling good about it. Um, I arrived there. By the way, I, I did this and did not realize Huntington Beach was the uh, – if you've been watching the news, there's been protests <laughs> about uh, not wearing masks and all that stuff. Don't close the beaches. Apparently, that's Huntington Beach. I did not connect the two. Uh, so we arrived there, and it, it, it's it's uh, 
scary how many people in that vicinity are not wearing masks. Not on the beach, but like like in the because we had to park in the neighborhood. The the beach parking was closed, uh, so we had to park in the neighborhood. And it's just amazing how many of a that community just does not feel like they need to wear a mask while they're around other people. Um, I I know it's a very heavily right leaning community, but uh, I don't know. Like I don't feel like I need to wear a mask if there's no other people around me. But if there's other people around me, that is like the only courtesy that uh, you, you should be do- you should be wearing a mask. Anyways, uh, we went to the beach. It was a little bit more crowded than I thought it was going to be. That said, uh, we were able to find a stretch of beach that was like probably like 150 feet in in either direction. We were the only people there except for some surfers that were in the water. So the the dogs got to have their fun, and uh, we we actually filmed it uh, for an episode of Ordinary Adventures, which went up this week, and people are enjoying. I'll put I'll put that uh, in the show notes if you want to see Pixel and Gizmo go to the dog beach. But I will say that it was the most alive I felt in the last two months, getting out of the house and like running on the beach with my dogs, and also it was the most uh, unfit and out of breath and out of shape I felt in in the last two months because like I I ran with the dogs for just a little bit and I felt like I was gonna die so this week back on the diet <laughs> diet set starts now I, I also started doing yoga again I'm doing uh DDP yoga which is a yoga program by Diamond Dallas Page, who used to be a pro wrestler, but he's kind of helped in, in, in recent years. He's helped a lot of people lose weight, and uh, he, he, he appeared on Shark Tank with us and a bunch of other places. I I lost some weight a few, like yeah, a while back, and uh, par- partially to this program. And Kitra and I did it uh, for the first time earlier this week. And it was her first time ever doing it. It's it, it's funny, like, like in the first like five minutes, she looks over to me and she's like, "I'm not even breaking a sweat. This is like easy. Are you sure we're gonna go like, get exercise?" And then like cut to like you know five minutes later, and we're both like dying with like sweat pouring off our our foreheads. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try to keep this up and try to do this at least five times a week and see if that can uh, help uh, build up. <laughs> my, my fitness again because i feel like uh sitting in this house for the last two months has really done something to me because usually you know I, i'm not the healthiest person in the world but i'm usually every week going to like theme parks and doing a lot of walking like there's a lot of walking if you look at my like health app on or my activity app on my my phone i i, I get in a lot of miles and that is not happening right now so i i, I feel like I, I felt at the talk beach, I, I felt it uh, really hard. So, um, yeah. Anyways, uh, Brad, what have you been up to? Um, so not really going anywhere, even though the uh, shelter at home order has the restrictions have kind of lifted around here. So there's, you know, the opportunity to go and do things, you know, some restaurants have not, are offering dine in again with limited capacity and all that, but just not just not ready for that yet. Um, so I've been occupying my time at home. Uh, I did get a cool package from Hasbro, uh, because this year marks the 40th anniversary of Empire Strikes Back, and they're doing this big, like, 
nostalgic uh, look back, you know, at the uh, franchise with all of their merchandise. So they released a, a whole new wave of Black Series figures in, like, vintage packaging. Uh, most of the figures, actually, I think pretty much all the figures, um, except for a couple, had already been uh, released previously in the old Black School Black Series line, but they um, re-released them with new uh, vintage packaging. And since some of them were out of, you know, discontinued, you couldn't really get them anymore. Uh, and so they sent the whole first and second wave, which is, was 10 figures, uh, and they're awesome. It has Yoda and R2-D2 with, with, you know, Swamp Gunk all over him and Bespin Luke and Han. So that was a pretty cool uh, package to get in the mail. Kind of helped, you know, make things a little bit more uh, easy to deal with, I guess, <laughs> during this time. And then um, I've, I've built a couple of Lego sets during time in quarantine, but I finally decided to get out um, a Christmas gift that I got a little while back that I'd just been holding off on putting together because um, Playmobil has a whole series of Ghostbusters play sets. And uh, my one of my cousins got me the Firehouse, and I finally got it out to put it together. And it's not as intensive of a build as a Lego set, especially the Ghostbusters Lego fire, um, Firehouse. But it's pretty cool. They're, um, it's definitely designed more to be, like, you know, actually played with as opposed to just as played on the shelf. But, like, its design is very similar to... Uh, the old-school Ghostbusters Playhouse, where it has the facade of the building on two sides and then its open interior uh, on the other two sides with uh, figures and, like, little props inside of it. And putting it together is not too bad. It's a lot of some snap-together pieces and pretty pretty easily. Um, there are some smaller stickers to put on things that are kind of tedious and difficult to get on there, especially if you're anal about how good the stickers look on things like like I am. Uh, but it was it was pretty fun to put together, and I've, I've got a couple of other smaller sets with the other characters that I'm gonna um, get out here pretty soon to put them on inside the firehouse. Yeah, I'm looking at photos of this right now. This is pretty extensive. Some of the accessories here, like they have like little frying pans and ghost traps. Yeah, yeah it's very cool. I, and actually, the the best part of the entire thing that I I, I haven't um, gotten it out of the box myself yet, but I've seen it in person, is the the Ecto one that they made for this playset is probably one of the cooler uh, like toy releases for the vehicle because it looks just like it, and it comes with a lot of cool accessories, and the figures actually fit inside of it. So that that's a, a cool part of the playset for sure. Yeah. And Playmobil, like, those characters look very, like, stylized, and, like, you could set that up. Uh, are you going to, like, set that up on, like, a shelf or something? Yeah, just, but, yeah. yeah. I've got a- yeah, I've got a shelf with a bunch of other Ghostbusters stuff. I'm going to put it on there with all the, the pieces and characters and everything. Oh, they even have the fire pole that you can have characters ride down? Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's crazy. Okay. Uh, HT, what have you been up to? Last time we talked to you, you were stuck in the basement. Uh, and uh, have you gotten out? I've emerged like the character in Parasite, <laughs> screaming and covered in blood. No, I'm not. I'm fine. I'm out of quarantine, and it's great. I, I emerged just in time for um, Mother's Day, so I was able to celebrate with my mom. Um, sadly, she uh, got up earlier than me and cooked a brunch for herself, so I wasn't able to actually celebrate that much with her. But it was, it was, a, it's been, you know, it's been fun. I've been actually able to go further than like the little basement and area outside the basement than I was before. And um, to commemorate my um, 
leaving quarantine, I actually like I uploaded a little video on Instagram that I made while I was bored, stuck in the basement. And uh, it's in the style of those uh, sort of ASMR minimalist aesthetic videos that I've been really obsessed with obsessed with on YouTube. Um, if you guys don't know about these, these are kind of the more the kind of Korean and Japanese videos where um, everything is shot in like this sort of dim natural light and uh, no, no one really speaks. It's just like the clatter of um, uh, dishes as they cook things and sort of like this twinkling piano music. And uh, I've been I've had you know, I really enjoy these videos. They soothe me a lot. My favorite channels are Hey Greendale and Honey Key in particular. And I found them when I was looking for recipes. Um, and there's kind of a nice balm for me. So I decided to um, make a little video about that when I was in quarantine. It's just me eating a lot of food. So it's <laughs> not that interesting. But um, I uploaded that on my Instagram. And um, yeah, like now I'm out of quarantine and I'm back in society now. See, I clicked on that HT, uh, but I clicked on it too late, and it was gone. Oh, it's it's, uh, it's uploaded on my um, Instagram. Um, uh, oh, it's on your actual profile. Yeah, it's on my okay, profile. Okay, I'm gonna have to go check that out then because I think I clicked on it and went to your stories, and it was like not finding it in the stories. I was like, oh, this is weird, but it's in your actual your actual Instagram. What yes. is your Instagram so people can find you on on Instagram? Htranbui. Htranbui. Okay, uh, Chris, what have you been up to? I just want to plug a new episode of 21st Century Spielberg because I do a lot of work <laughs> on this show and I want people to listen to it. Uh, so, yeah, that's up. It's it's on the terminal and catch me if you can. Uh, there's there's a new episode, ev- two new episodes every month. So there's going to be another episode this month soon and then another one next month. So uh, there's a link to it. Go check it out. Thank you. Won't you? <laughs> okay, uh, Chris, you're the, also the only person that's been reading things this week. So what have you been reading? Uh, yeah, so I finished reading The Men Who Would Be King, which is all about uh, the formation of uh, DreamWorks. And oh, yeah, we recommended that on a previous episode of The Water Cooler right? Yes, that's yeah. that's what inspired me to finally read it. And uh, I loved it. This is my favorite type of Hollywood book in that it's it's kind of gossipy and it's like – there's a lot of like off the record sources, so you don't know if it's entirely true, but it sounds true. And it was great. It was just great insight into, you know, how those guys work and how how they were pretty much just like flying by the seat of their pants. Like, you know, these are very successful, rich people, and they were all like, you know, oh, we can start our own film studio. And it turned out to not be as smooth and easy as they were hoping. It was also kind of depressing, dude, because it's all about there's an extensive thing in there about how hard Jeffrey Katzenberg worked on the Prince of Egypt, which is like a, a great movie and no one cared about it. And then they released Shrek and everyone loved Shrek, which is just soul crushing because I hate Shrek. So, uh, and it, like, there's a whole thing in the book about how, you know, Shrek pretty much saved the studio because it was like their first real major hit. So it just proves, uh, everything is awful and <laughs> everyone loves Shrek. Hey, the first Shrek is good. No, it's not. No, <laughs> none of them it's are good. good. Chris, it's fun. It's no, no. <laughs> I agree with Chris here. When, when I was when I was younger, I thought it was so hip and cool and edgy. I look back now, and I I prefer the honesty of other animated movies of the time, like you the can, Prince of Egypt. You can have you can have both. Yeah. Oh, you absolutely can have both. But Shrek is also bad. So <laughs> I will say that I think when Shrek came out, it was it was fine. Nowadays, if you revisit it, like a lot of the jokes do not hold up because of 
them being so you know modern so, yeah uh, they're very like pop culture and you know at the time that's great you know but you go back and rewatch it now and i don't know it just doesn't hold up shrek 3 though that's a that's a no i never <laughs> Chris, what about Puss in Boots? I didn't, I didn't see the hey, Puss in Boots. G- movie. Guillermo del Toro was involved in Puss in Boots. You should watch that. Was he? Was he? I did not know that. Yeah, he was well. a consultant. Well, I saw this whole screening which he introduced, and he like was a consultant on it. Like I don't know how how involved he was, but he made it sound like he was involved. I don't know. <laughs> he was <laughs> all right. Anyways, uh, is there anything like super interesting that you learned from this book? I remember one of the big things that people were talking about after this book came out was this whole part about Steven Spielberg and how paranoid he is with security and how he has like this this motorcycle that's never been used permanently parked outside his like his studio, like his uh, what do you call that? Like bungalow. A, a bungalow, yeah. So that he can make a quick escape if like something happens. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that that's it's also like, you know, that seems crazy, but it's also like reasonable when you think about that, like someone like broke into his house once yeah, with like yeah. razor blades and stuff. So I, he sort of kind of warranted me apparently. The, the biggest takeaway I had from this book is, boy, it made me really jealous of rich people because there's just like it's like page after page of these really wealthy people just like chilling in their huge la houses and i was like man i will never ever get anything close to what these people have like there's a whole section about how amblin had like this fancy chef and everyone it was was basically like just like uh like it was less like an office and more like just like this really laid back atmosphere where everyone like rolls into work at like one o'clock in the afternoon and there's no like (laughs) no one really cares about anything even though they're very successful and it just made me very wistful for being a, a very wealthy person, which I never will be. I will I will be working until I drop dead. So it made me jealous, I guess is what I'm saying. Okay, let's let's move on to what we've been watching. And I'm going uh, to hand this over to you again, Chris. What have you been watching? I watched Capone, which is the new Josh Trank movie starring Tom Hardy as Al Capone. And this movie already feels like it's kind of infamous just because everyone's talking about how – uh, weird is and and kind of gross it is and uh, the reviews are are mixed leaning towards negative but I I really enjoyed this just because it's a very odd movie it really swings for the fences and I appreciate movies that are trying to do something even if you know they're not entirely successful um, you know rather than like a standard mobster movie this is more like a like a horror movie because it's set in like the, the last few years of Al Capone's life when syphilis had pretty much destroyed his mind and, and made him uh, almost like catatonic. And uh, the movie is from his point of view. And so what happens is to portray his deteriorating mind, he keeps like having visions of stuff from his past and you know he's just basically being haunted by all the terrible things he did and it gets into like really weird creepy horror movie stuff and i really appreciated that and tom hardy is is once again just you know entirely going for it uh using a weird voice and looking really different than he really looks like they make him look like he's just like rotting basically he just looks like a a zombie basically but uh you know i i know people aren't gonna dig this but i i really liked it i liked it 
probably more than most people. And I would I would watch it again even. Well, someone who didn't like it is also on this podcast. Ben, you saw Capone? <laughs> uh, yeah, Chris, he certainly liked it a lot more than I did. I mean, I, I on on one level, I um, agree with you that I always find it more interesting when people swing for the fences. And this definitely, it, it's a pretty small movie, but it definitely feels like a big swing because of those horror movie aspects that you talked about and just the the approach to like such an iconic gangster character who looms so large in the American consciousness to like break this guy down to the point where he's just coughing up his lungs and spitting into buckets and pissing himself and shitting himself. And just like, you know, being this complete, um, like a completely emasculated version of this gangster, uh, is definitely an interesting take, but I don't know the, the final product, the whole, you know, the, taking a step back and looking at the movie in the in the macro i just didn't really find much much to love about it i i think is tom hardy a good actor like am i gonna get canceled for even suggesting this but <laughs> like it i don't know guys i'm i'm really um i mean he he has is certainly capable of delivering memorable performances but I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I'm thinking this out as I'm talking, and and maybe I am going to get canceled for this, but I'm not sure that I actually like Tom Hardy as a performer. <laughs> like, he, he, you know, I, I think the first thing I saw him in was Inception, and that is so far away from every other role that he has taken since then. It seems like he is really, like, um, driven into the sort of, like, crazy-voiced, wild-eyed characters, and... And that is certainly like a choice all the way across the board. But I just I don't really think I'm on the same level as Tom Hardy. <laughs> I don't know if that's uh, if that's just me personally, if anybody else feels that way. But uh, I know he's like very highly respected in the film Twitter community. But um, I don't know if anybody else <laughs> on this podcast feels that way about Tom Hardy. I, but I think it's that oh, Tom Hardy is a good. Oh, sorry. Actually, uh, I, I think Tom Hardy is a good actor. And I think it's fairly undeniable, but I think maybe the problem you're having is appreciating any of the characters because they're not necessarily in movies that you really like, which kind of mars the performance side of the things. Because I really think he has an uncanny ability to disappear into characters and uh, fluctuate his his voice and you know his physical presence to really bring characters to life. But I I also occasionally have a problem with appreciating what he does overall simply because. I would say, like, I like maybe half the movies that he stars in enough to be like to recommend them to people, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's pretty much where I stand. What are you gonna say, HT? Uh, my take on Tom Hardy is that he hates how good looking he is, and he tries everything in his power to mask that. Sometimes, literally with masks, often literally with masks, uh, or with changing his voice or his performance some way. He desperately wants to be a weird, weird character actor, and just doesn't want to be the the leading man that Hollywood seems to want to pigeonhole him as. So I think that's just kind of his way of acting out, and um, I respect that honestly. Yeah, I'll have to interrogate my relationship with Tom Hardy a little bit further as I continue to watch his movies. But um, real quick, the one, one other thing I wanted to say about Capone was, Chris, I don't know if you felt this way, but I had a hard time separating uh, the events of this movie from the person who made it, which was Josh Trank, as you mentioned. And he, you know, notoriously crashed and burned with Fantastic Four and 
uh, ended up leaving a Star Wars project right around that same time. And I could not help but look at this movie as like him working through those demons in the form of these characters in this story. Like there's a, a moment. Well, I mean, the whole thing is like he's imprisoned in this big house and it sort of seems like a, a metaphor for director's jail and he has a stroke and I mean like he literally shits the bed at one point you know there are there are uh, a lot of um, parallels I think you could draw between uh, Tom Hardy's Capone here and Josh Trank the person uh, what did you make of that Chris did you think about that at all when you were watching it you know I honestly didn't get that but I, I think that's a fascinating read I think like if that is in the movie I think it's subconscious like i feel like even josh trank wouldn't realize he was doing that but if you like told him that the way you just said here he'd be like huh maybe you're right like i feel like it's not intentional but it comes through just because of all the stuff he's been through over the last few years i don't want to say been through that makes it sound like he's had a hard time he's a he's a rich rich filmmaker he's not you know he's not like going through hell or anything like that but just all the stuff that he's experienced over the years definitely probably colored how he made the film yeah yeah and he wrote and directed this too so it's not like you know i I feel like a lot of times people can uh, can uh apply um readings of things to people who just direct movies even though other people write the script and you know auteur theory and all that kind of stuff but this seems definitely like a almost like a one-man show behind the scenes like you know this project sprang forth directly from josh trank's mind so um i don't know that's that's part of the reason why i i had trouble separating that so i'd be interested if any of our listeners have um have watched this movie if they came away with a similar reading or uh what they think about capone in general whether they they sort of side more with chris or more with me on this one but um it's definitely it seems to be sort of a controversial movie i guess or divisive anyway after after hearing you two talk about it I'm, i'm wondering ben if i asked you like it sounds like it's interesting enough that even though you did not like it you might recommend people to see it um, I would recommend like my film friends to see it. Yeah, like people people who I know are like big movie lovers and you know constantly watch stuff all the time. Yes, yeah. I would. But like for my parents or you know yeah. more average moviegoers and stuff, I, I would say absolutely skip it because I don't think there's anything uh, really that that is going to be. Um, for them, really, I, I think it, this movie is more interesting to me anyway as like a. Uh, like I said, sort of a reading on Josh Trank. And, you know, if you know about Josh Trank, if you've seen his previous movies, if you read all the behind the scenes stories and stuff like that, I would recommend watching it just to see what you think about that reading and, and just to watch it for Hardy and for Linda Cardellini and for Kyle McLaughlin, who who pops up for like two seconds in this movie. Um, You know, there, there are things that are worthwhile and those horror elements Chris mentioned, all of it is, is kind of interesting. I just didn't really like it, but, (laughs) but yeah, I think for, for, you know, film literate uh, cinephile type people um, it's worth watching, but for like the average viewer, I would say absolutely not. But okay. then, would it be improved if it went by its original title, Fonzo, instead of Capone? And it's kind of what I feel like Capone sets up a different expectation for what the movie is compared to Fonzo. Is that a weird thing to bring up? Uh, that actually makes a lot of sense to me because Fonzo is a much better title for this movie because of what I was talking about before. Like, Capone makes it seem like it's going to be this, you know, sort of masculine portrayal of this iconic character and this movie is like defiantly not that it is i don't think they they really i think they say the words al capone maybe once or twice in the movie and it's like 
if you blink, you know, if you if you tune out for one second, you might miss it. So it's it's almost like the movie, like everybody just calls him Fonz or Fonzo throughout the entire film. So, um, yeah, I think that's a much more appropriate title for what this is. But I also understand from a marketing aspect, like nobody understands what the hell that is. And if, if you just, you know, the one word Capone will get a lot more people to watch it, even though they have no idea what they're in for when they press play on this thing. So I haven't been watching much this past week. I've been, Kitra and I have been binging our way through the back catalog uh, on YouTube of Iman and Beck, which I talked about previously. They're the couple that uh, live in a converted sprinter van, and uh, we've been enjoying that. Uh, I did watch, uh, Josh Gad has been releasing these these specials on YouTube called uh Reunited Apart, I think it's called. Uh, he did one on Goonies, which was really good. And this past week, he did one on Back to the Future, which is uh, my favorite movie of all time. It seems like Josh Gad and I have similar taste in 80s movies. Uh, and uh, I was excited to see this. And I, I watched it on YouTube. Uh, I, I'll say a couple things. It, it's interesting. First of all, it's interesting who doesn't appear on the special. So, Tom Wilson doesn't appear in the special, but like he phones in later in another video wearing a mask in his own house. It's it's kind of strange and weird. He's doing some kind of bit. Um, Claudia Wells, who played um, Marty's girlfriend in the first movie, she shows up after the credits to like call in, but she doesn't call in while the rest of the cast is there. Like, I don't know, like, do these people, like, have problems with some of the original cast? Is there, like, some kind of, like, underlying, like, tension there? I mean, Elizabeth Shue is there, who plays uh, Jennifer in the sequels. Uh, the, uh, I, I don't know. I was, I think maybe because this is my favorite movie of all time, I was expecting more. But, like, a lot of this is, is, like, these, it feels overproduced. And it's kind of like pre-scripted things where, like, Christopher Lloyd is saying, like, a joke to Josh Gad that was clearly written for him. And, like, they're both they're all, like, reading, like, famous moments from Back to the Future off a script to each other instead of, like, telling stories. Like, I, I want to watch this and see them tell stories about the making of the movie, about the legacy of this movie. And it feels like much more of, like, a on-the-surface thing than I... I guess i wanted brad you also saw uh the back to the future reunion yeah and you know i i somewhat agree with what you say i i think it's you know mostly just meant to be this kind of fun distraction for people who love these movies but maybe aren't as like hardcore into them as people like you and me you know especially with a movie like back to the future because a lot you know a lot of the, the stuff that they did talk about during uh this reunion they, it was like trivia that has been known about Back to the Future for a while. If you've ever read any making of book or seen, you know, uh, retrospectives of, about the movie, and so like, I that I was still fine with the fa- fact that they were able to get everyone together like this and do a cool reunion. And even though it is a little bit hokey, I, I don't mind seeing them, you know, read lines from the movies and having fun and revisiting that um, in in this setting, especially right now when you know there's so much, you know shit going on so it's i do agree that it could use some improvement but i think for the amount of time it requires and what they're what what they have at their disposal as far as resources i think this is probably the best thing that we can get out of this because and like 
it makes it accessible to a wide variety of people too because not everyone is as interested in you know nerdy behind the scenes details as we are you know um so i I think that this works but ultimately you know i would just like to see some kind of feature length you know documentary that reveals so much more about the about the franchise I mean, I appreciate how, like, Josh Gad is kind of geeking out as he, like, nerding out as he's talking to these people, but I, I wish that he had a producer to, like, prepare, like, some questions that he, like, you know, like, when, when you go on a talk show, you have, like, that, uh, what, what do you call it, that pre-interview or whatever, and then they, they, they then they lead into questions that they know are going to come to, like, interesting answers from the participants, and it feels like there's nobody doing that, so I, don't know. I, don't, I don't know. I feel like that they they probably are doing that a little bit, but I imagine it's also kind of difficult to coordinate something like that when you have yeah. so many people and not not have it be a much longer, more involved, you know, production. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Anyways, I'll keep on watching these, but I'm hoping they do get better because uh, what Josh Gad is doing is is great. It's, it's great that he's able to bring all these people together. Um, I just wish it wasn't as overly produced and you know had more substance to it okay um i the only thing i really knew i watched this week is this show called dave this is on fx on hulu is it on fx proper i don't know like it has the fx on hulu logo which i think devs had so devs was not on fx it's all confusing to me i don't understand dave is on fx proper because i i have episodes of it recorded on my dvr okay that makes sense uh, so this is about a rapper who i didn't know his name's little dicky or that's his like uh performance name and uh his real name is dave and in the series he's kind of playing himself this is almost um it feels like a parody of like atlanta which is actually also on the same network, FX. And uh, he, he's kind of like this douchey, self-centered, but also goofy and charming at times guy who's trying to, you know, he's had this viral hit on YouTube of being a rapper, but no one takes him seriously as a rapper and he wants to, you know, break out into the actual world of rapping. And uh, the comedy is sometimes vulgar. It's often about, like, his insecurities. Uh, you know, Dave has, like, some insecurities about his little dicky both figuratively and literally in ways um about you know his performing career the the the, the, there's stuff going on down there in the pants there's um it's entertaining i'm not gonna say it's like amazing or a must watch but it's 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 very enjoyable, and I and Brad, I think you're gonna like this show, so I'm excited. Yeah, to see I'm gonna I'm gonna watch it sometime soon. I've been meaning to. Yeah, I know some some of the people on this uh, podcast have refused to watch the show based on the poster alone. Chris, can, can you talk about not wanting to see Dave? It's just repulsive. It's like a <laughs> pair of giant underwear, and he's like coming out of the dick hole. And I get it. It's a I get the joke. I just it every time I see it, it just makes me angry. I think it's because he has that like stupid look on his face. Like I feel like if he had like a different look on his face as he's portraying a penis, I would I would <laughs> like it a little bit more. But he's just he just looks like he's like Duh. he just you know, he looks like he's making that noise like what, what face would you like as he's portraying a penis? I don't know. Like a compl- I don't I can't even think of not that that one not the one we got. That's all I know. <laughs> Would you feel better if he had like a pipe and like glasses on? Yes, and like a bowler hat, like you know something. 
Just something, you know, change it up. Just he's got that dumb. He's giving like a thumbs up, which is like the thing everyone does in photos when they don't know what to do. It's either like the thumbs up or they give the finger. It's just ah, See, yeah, but this yeah. Stuff, <laughs> but that that perfectly encapsulates that character, which makes me think you would hate this show. Yeah, well, now I want to watch it even less. So, <laughs> you, well done, advertising for Dave. Yeah. Well, okay. Uh, the other thing I watched this week is I watched uh, the finale of Survivor. This is the 40th season. This is Winners at War. So this was like an epic. All the contestants were previous winners on Survivor. It's never been done before. And usually, if you don't know, uh, the finale of Survivor usually is like this double episode. And at the end of the double episode, the jury, which are the previous members that were voted off, they get to vote out of the the remaining three people who is going to win the million dollars this year was $2 million. And they, they go and they write it on parchment and put it into a thing. And then Jeff Probst takes the, the container holding all the votes and he walks off into the jungle. And then we cut to Los Angeles where we're in a sound stage and all these people are now like, you know, in normal clothes and there's like a reunion episode and then they read the votes and we find out who wins. And, you know, there's kind of like a reunion aspect of the whole thing. Uh, this year, obviously, that couldn't happen because of the coronavirus. So uh, Jeff Probst walks off into the ju- jungle and then somehow appears into in his garage where they have built a survivor-looking set, and he reads the uh, the votes while you know the three contestants are over Zoom. So uh, a little anticlimactic for like the biggest survivor season of all time. Uh, I will say, I. I my friends, uh, Jeff and Lauren, uh, suggested, like, we watch Survivor with them sometimes. Like, we'll usually watch, like, the first episode of the season and, like, the last episode of the season. And they suggested, like, let's watch it over Zoom or FaceTime. And I was like, oh, that's going to be so stupid and so annoying. And, like, we're going to hear an echo over, the, like, the recording. And it, it was kind of a, a little bit annoying. We would have to, like, get it so that it, like, lined up properly. But I can't tell you how much fun it was to, like watch this three-hour finale with good friends over the internet, over FaceTime, uh, j- just being able to, you know, have back and forth while, like, things were happening during the show. It was just um, a good time. So uh, I, I, don't, I don't know what you could do that with, but but I would highly recommend if, if you have that opportunity to hang out with friends and watch something. I, I, I guess, like, you could do that. Like, they have that whole Netflix party uh extension on chrome and stuff like that um but i i definitely see the appeal of that after watching the survivor uh season finale with friends over facetime so but that's all i've been watching this week brad what else have you been watching i dove into some netflix movies uh one that i've been putting off for a long time that i felt like i finally needed to really get around to watching because I had heard so much about it, and somehow I managed to avoid uh, any spoilers ruining what this movie is actually about, which I heard it's so much better to go in blind, and that's the perfection. And man, this is one twisted, fucked up, gnarly thriller. Um, it's there's, there's so many cool twists and turns that like just left me like, what the fuck is going on in this movie? And it's just uh, very suspenseful, very tense. Um, that the cast is great in it, and yeah, it goes in completely unexpected directions. And if you if you haven't taken the time to watch yet, if you haven't heard of the Perfection, I don't even watch a trailer, don't read anything about it. Um, 
but yeah, go go watch it on Netflix. It is such a such an intense thriller to to watch, and especially to watch blind. I'm so glad you liked it, uh, Brad. Uh, Jacob and I, I feel like we're banging the drum for that one a little while back, and uh, it didn't have the support that that it deserved. I think so. I'm glad people are finding it. Yeah, and at first too, is um, without necessarily giving anything away, I was like, I was like, oh no, maybe this isn't the best movie to watch during this current time period. But but then, and that's, that's all I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also watched uh, Coffee and Kareem, uh, which is a Netflix movie starring Ed Helms and Taraji P Henson. And this was a movie um, where the script made it on, uh, I think, like the lower end of the blacklist a few years ago or something like that. Uh, it's an R-rated comedy that. It's probably best described as like uh, a raunchy adult version of Cop and a Half in a way, uh, because it teams up Ed Helms with this really uh, sarcastic um, and obnoxious uh, young kid who doesn't like that he's dating his mom and tries to enlist the help of uh, a drug dealer to scare scare him. Ed Helms as a cop and. Then he ends up witnessing uh, a cop getting killed, and they're on the run. And uh, it's it's pretty decent. It's not quite as polished comedically as I would have hoped. It felt like it could have used uh, maybe another draft, some punch-ups, because um, there's sometimes where it just feels like there's a little too much dead space. Um, it's it's breezy, but I just feel like there's a little too much time in between laughs. Um, but it's it's better than I anticipated, because honestly, I wasn't expecting much from it, even though the, the, the script had been, you know praise in the industry before he got produced but um definitely what really helps is uh the presence of uh terrence the little uh garden high who plays kareem and he, he's basically like this, does, doing the same kind of thing that uh bobby j thompson did in role models where he's just being inappropriate um and vulgar and hilarious as and you don't normally see kids acting like this and also who is great in this is betty gilpin um, I know a lot of people like her from Glow and stuff like that. I, I haven't seen tons of her work because um, I haven't watched Glow, but I, everything I've seen her and she has been been outstanding in. But she is particularly great in here uh, as a detective. She has some like some hilarious one-liners. The way she rips into Ed Helms. Um, so that's yeah, that's Coffee and Cream. It's available on Netflix. Uh, and then I also watched last night. I saw that it debuted and I was like, you know what? Why not? Uh, I watched the wrong Missy which is a new Happy Madison production on Netflix starring David Spade. And the trailer, I was like, hmm, yeah, this looks like more of the same. And on some levels, it is. But it's not, I don't think it's good, but I don't think it's nearly as terrible as I thought it was going to be. Um, So the premise is David David Spade plays this guy who's trying to get a promotion at work, and he's getting ready to go on a work retreat. Uh, he's bummed out because he has been broken up with, uh, divorced by his ex-wife, and now he has to go on this trip with nobody. But then he meets um, Molly Sims as a character at an airport by happenstance, hits it off with her somehow because <laughs> David Spade's so charming, and uh, invites her to go on this um, work retreat with him. But he accidentally invites this girl who he had a terrible, insane, blind date with, played by Lauren Lapkus. And she's just obnoxious and goofy and weird and uh, a total nightmare. And so it's 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 slapsticky. There, Lauren Lapkus is really good in this movie, though, because even though she's being obnoxious and annoying, that's exactly what the character calls for. And she she has some really funny lines and bits, and she's just totally dedicated to being absolutely bonkers in this movie. 
But it's held back by the fact that David Spade just doesn't work as a leading man in a role like this. He's always been better as this, the straight man to a larger comedic personality. And even though Lauren Lapkus is that personality in this movie, he just doesn't have the weight to carry a romantic comedy like this. If anything, it feels like a movie that was intended for Adam Sandler to star in, but maybe he didn't want to, especially because the usual suspects of Nick Swartzen and Rob Schneider and some of Adam Sandler's kids appear in it. So, um, but it's, it has some funny moments. Uh, again, not downright terrible, but not necessarily something that I would, would recommend. But uh, what I will recommend is the new Hulu animated series, Solar Opposites, which is created by Rick and Morty co-creator Justin Roiland uh, and former Rick and Morty writer Mike McMahon. Uh, the whole first season is available to binge on Hulu now. It is hilarious. Um, it has a much more serial storytelling style than Rick and Morty, even though it has a similar sense of humor and like raunchy, inappropriate sci-fi antics. Uh, but the way it mixes that kind of sci-fi, you know, raunchy Rick and Morty with the classic sitcom style of these uh, four aliens uh, passing their time on Earth while they wait for this little being to evolve and terraform the Earth to give them a new planet to live on. Um, it's just, it adds a, a, a charm to what, what is also something that is really grotesque and dark and weird. Um, but it's, it's, it's hilarious. And there's also a, uh, a B-plot in the show that slowly starts to take form as the series continues and really is given a huge push towards the end of the season. Um, and so if you want to find out more about that, it's in my review, but there's, there are a couple big surprises in the show that I don't spoil that make this, uh, the first season of the show feel surprisingly ambitious and not just like it's treading water trying to be like Rick and Morty. So give it a shot. It's, it's, it's hilarious. Very cool. And what else have you been watching? And then just really quickly, I rewatched uh, The Cable Guy, which is a fun, you know, dark, weird piece of Jim Carrey's filmography. It came during that time, you know, when Jim Carrey was at like the height of his comedic fame um, and everyone was expecting this movie to be more of the same. And even though Jim Carrey is definitely wacky in this movie, it has that that darker side that just makes it a little bit odd and he really is so good in this movie as is matthew broderick who only had really a couple good roles that he was in throughout the 90s um like election um but yeah this is it's it's just such a fun movie and it has uh there's people who i forgot were in this movie even in just small parts um like bob odenkirk can be spotted in a really bit part at one point uh you know janine garofalo is in this obviously ben stiller who directed it has a, a small part that keeps recurring throughout um, and so, yeah, even though this, you know, wasn't necessarily received as well back when it came out, I think that it's uh, a really fascinating and fun part of Jim Carrey's uh, career. And then one movie that I uh, I recently talked about in the quarantine stream, our ongoing uh, recommendation column for movies to watch while you're stuck at home, uh, not another teen movie, which is one of the rare great spoof movies that came out in the 2000s when uh, Friedberg and Seltzer were the primary, you know, spoof people doing stuff like Epic Movie and Date Movie and all those garbage <laughs> uh, parodies that, like, they tried to use the popularity of movies at the time to make spoofs, but really all it was was an excuse to make shitty pop culture references that were dated within, like, the same year. Uh, but Not Another Teen Movie is, like, uh, a great spoof of high school movies from the 80s, 90s, uh, and e even some of the early 2000s. And I, I feel like there's probably some people out there who know chris evans best because he's captain america 
But you need to watch this movie just to see Chris Evans being a a, a douchebag jock in this movie. Uh, he does some really hilarious stuff that you wouldn't expect Chris Evans to do um, because it was earlier in his career. And it's just very funny. It's it's definitely got some, uh, you know, more juvenile humor here and there. But the spoof side of it feels like it's in the same spirit of stuff like Airplane and the Naked Gun, where it really genuinely spoofs the genre as opposed to just making lazy, you know, side jokes. Yeah, I remember really liking this one, and I'm not a fan of spoof movies. What other spoof, like, movies that are spoofing a genre do you, like, were actually good? Like, I remember liking the original Scary Movie, or, or maybe I was yeah, just... Yeah, no, the first Scary Movie is still great, I think. They definitely got worse as they went on. Um, a recent great example is they came together with Paul Rudd and Amy Poehler, which spoofs the romantic comedy genre really well, especially New York set romantic comedies. Um, Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. Oh, yeah, that is awesome. Yeah, perfect parody of Walk the Line and and other uh, music-based biopics. Some Um, some people would say that that movie ruined music-based biopics going forward. Absolutely. It's it's almost impossible to watch a serious one be produced after that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Jacob, what have you been watching? Uh, I watched uh, Bad Times the El Royale, Drew Goddard's follow-up to Cabin in the Woods. And I was at the world premiere of this at Fantastic Fest two years ago, where I was thoroughly underwhelmed. And I feel like most people were underwhelmed by it, too, and it was a huge box office bomb. But it's been kind of sticking back in my mind for two years now. It's sort of lingering back there, having me thinking, did I miss something? Uh, <laughs> is this better than I thought it was? Because images from it, lines from it, moments from it kept on creeping up in the back of my brain so i figured it was time to give it a revisit uh at a time when i wasn't eight days deep in a film festival watching a two and a half hour slow burn thriller after uh like you know very little sleep and i think i was wrong i think really yeah i think it's a really good movie and it's maybe it's uneven and maybe it doesn't quite achieve what it needs to achieve but uh in years later i'm prepared to admit I was oh. wrong about Bad Times at El Royale. I think it's a really, really good movie that was such an interesting goal uh, and, and about such interesting things, especially in the wake of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is a celebration of 1969 and sort of a a movie about how this era deserves to live. And then you have this movie made by a different filmmaker, which is which literally puts 1969 on trial in a hotel that's a metaphor for purgatory with a Charles Manson figure acting as... as judge of a kangaroo court that and it's i don't know if maybe it's become interesting because it now has a counterpoint to make it interesting but knowing what it was and knowing the shape of the film going in i think it's a really good movie uh and one that i would hardly recommend people who wrote it off seek it out mm-hmm. now that we're you know a few years past its release so i guess i'll ask you guys not not just bad times at royale but is there anything you've seen recently that you've turned around on as you realize you were wrong before? I'm curious to hear about anyone else have any similar experience. I don't have an answer to that, but I do want to say about Bad about bad Times at El Royale that I think it, it is elevated. Like, it, is, it is great, but like the story, I think, I don't know, for me... I feel like the 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 first half of this movie builds up this mystery that the second half kind of doesn't deliver upon in a way that was satisfying for me or maybe I should say it was not what I wanted the second half of the movie to be and then you had kind of like these cartoonish kind of portrayals of like you know the Charles Manson kind of character and it kind of got a little wackier 
Yeah, I get that. that. That's my reaction when I first saw it too, Peter, because I was expecting, you know, a pot boiler, a really exciting thriller. And it was second viewing where I realized that the thriller aspects were uh, red herring from a movie that's yeah. literally about the sins of America and the people representing them being put on trial uh, in hell. And that, once I realized that, I go, oh, this is not what I thought it was at all. And then it worked for me. Maybe I'll have to give this another try because I remember sitting in a screening room at the first screening of this and I was halfway through the movie and being like, this is going to be my favorite movie of the year. And then the second half of the movie just kind of totally did not, you know, push me away from that. Um, but I, I guess, does anybody want to answer Jacob's question here? Have, have, has anybody seen any recent movies that has completely turned them around to a movie that they didn't otherwise love? Uh, you know what? The Emperor's New Groove is actually pretty great. Uh, no, I'm kidding. That what? movie is trash. <laughs> I hate that movie so much. Okay, continue. I don't, I don't have anything, but I just want to weigh in and say Bedtimes of the El Royale is, in fact, good. Um, it's a little uneven, but uh, the cast is so great um cynthia irvo and uh jeff bridges are like so good together i want them to like be in other movies like as a team because like halfway through the movie they, they team up and they have like this really great easygoing like chemistry together and i was really impressed by that and chris hemsworth is, is so good as the as the this charles manson figure um yeah i think this is another one of those swing for the fences movies where uh, the, they don't hold back. It's like everything and the kitchen sink. And I, I, I always appreciate when films do that. I feel like this is another one of those times for me, at least in the second half, that this film is like firing on all cylinders except for the script. But I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's – I don't know. There there are times where I, I, I will admit that I think it's not that the movie is bad. It's maybe the movie wasn't what I wanted from it. And maybe this is it because I know – what? So that's exactly how I felt. You, you, what you're saying is exactly how I felt the first time I watched it. So I, I think maybe it's time for a revisit your suit, yeah. for, you, for you. Yeah, maybe I will. Okay, uh, Jacob, what else have you been watching? Uh, I watched a movie called Z, just the, the letter Z. It's a uh, Shutter exclusive, the Shutter streaming service. It's a horror film. And I click play hoping for you know just a good time, something silly to watch while having a drink with my wife. And uh, I don't know where this movie came from, but scared to freaking hell out of me guys like it's been a long time since a movie had me on my like literally on edge like genuinely upset and afraid for scares coming around and there's a there's one jump scare in particular it's the best jump scare since the insidious kitchen scare if you know what i'm talking about then you know that one uh my wife who's a horror movie veteran she doesn't spook easily she literally screamed (laughs) full volume in our living room when it happened uh this movie about a um a woman uh and her husband they have, a, uh, they, have a, they have a son, he's a bit of a loner, he has an imaginary friend named Z, and as you can imagine, uh, Z turns out to be real and to have malicious intentions, and maybe other people will have different reactions, maybe I'm crazy, but I found this movie so goddamn scary. Chris, have you seen Z? I need to know if I'm crazy or not. Uh, I have seen this. I don't love it. I do like that jump scare you're talking about, but I think the movie is just, I think the ending really fizzles out because it feels like they didn't know what to do with it. I have to add, I was also like guilted into seeing this. I was, uh, I was at the Overlook film festival where, where this played there. And so did Daniel isn't real, which is another 
uh, imaginary friend who turns out to be real and evil thing. And I was, I was in the theater with uh, Megan Navarro who writes for us sometimes. And she was like, I think I'm going to stick around and, and watch Z. And I was like, ugh, another imaginary friend movie. And the director was like walking by and he was like, actually, it's a lot different. And I was like, oh, I feel like a real asshole now. I have, to watch, <laughs> I have to sit here and watch your movie because I felt really bad. And then the movie wasn't that great. So I felt vindicated even though I sat through it. But uh, it's OK. I, I do love that jump scare you're talking about, though. It, it, that's really effective. Man, I, I think it's really scary. And um, I so uh, if you have if you have a shutter, it's like 84 minutes long. And there's an, I think there's enough good scares in it. Uh, to at least be worthwhile. Maybe you won't have the same reaction I did, which is be like actively scared by it. But I had a great time with Z. Yeah, that's streaming on Shutter. Uh, Cursed Films. I binged it all in one sitting. This is a new documentary series uh, covering films, film productions that were quote unquote cursed. Uh, covers The Exorcist, The Omen, The Poltergeist series, The Crow, and Twilight Zone, the movie. Uh, sets where things went really, really wrong. And documentary series tries to try to get to the bottom of it. It tries to understand what went wrong uh, on both, you know, literal levels and metaphysical levels. Like, for example, um, the Omen episode, which is a set where it was plagued by all kinds of chaos. Uh, they bring in, you know, the filmmakers who are there, like director Richard Donner. They bring in film critics to talk about the production. They, they bring in, um, like, academics and professors and researchers to explain why we embrace the idea of curses and why we look for supernatural explanations for bad things. But they also bring in like exorcists and witches and paranormal uh, and, like black magicians and Satanists to like explain the idea behind curses. And there's a crazy scene in the Omen episode where a uh, YouTuber black magician puts a curse on a, on a, on a, on a film production to, to prove it can be done. And it's like, it's, it's just a really insane thing. It manages to be really entertaining and enlightening and educational while also uh, exploring every side of it. Like are these film productions actually cursed or, or is it bullshit? And it does it, it does it in a really fun, satisfying, unique way where it doesn't write off the idea of a film being cursed, but also doesn't shy away when a filmmaker comes on screen and says, no, we weren't cursed. Stop propagating this. <laughs> um, also, like for the darker episodes, like The Crow and Twilight Zone movie, where there were active deaths on set, it does a really fine job of explaining what went wrong in a really sober, coherent way. I guess it's the first time I think I fully understood how the accident on set of The Crow really happened and they do it by bringing in a special effects artist to sort of recreate it in a safe environment to like demonstrate on camera how things went wrong and the episode about twilight zone they bring in a production designer from that film who in like a haunting talking head explains how he saw things falling apart in front of him uh so it, it does a really good job of balancing being reverent of the people who were harmed but also being a really really entertaining series about curses and about how we need to believe in curses in order to justify tragedy. Uh, I know, Chris, you reviewed this for us. Did anybody else see this? Or, Chris, do you have anything else to add? Uh, no, I, I really liked it. Um, uh, the, the Twilight Zone episode really made me conflicted because it, it really made me realize what a scumbag John Landis is. And it and it, it's, like, awkward for me because I like a lot of John Landis's movies, but... And even though I'd obviously known about the Twilight Zone accident and I've actually seen the footage of it, which is featured in this. So be warned if you, you know, if you're squeamish about that stuff, because it is kind of brutal to watch. Wait, what, even though, what, like, what about it made you change your mind on him? It's just the way they talk about it. Like the people who are actually there just talking about how he 
like this wasn't just like a a casual accident. Like John Landis took a lot of steps to make this happen. And, he, you know, like, first of all, like he wasn't working with actual child actors. Like he basically pulled kids off the street because, you know, child actors, you know, there are, there are laws. You can't have them working at night. And this was a night shoot. And so to get around that, he, he literally just pulled kids off the street for this. And he like hid them from people. So no one would be like, Hey, you can't have kids working on this set. So like he did a lot of stuff to make this happen. And, I was only like vaguely aware of some of this and like hearing it all laid out the way it is in this episode, just made me really just find him really despicable. And like the way he acted like after it too, where he like, he went to Vic Morrow is the guy who, who got killed with the kids and he went to his funeral and he did this, like he wasn't like invited, but he went to the funeral anyway. And he gave like this eulogy that was really like self-serving and it just, it just really paints John Landis as this, like scumbag and and like i said that just makes me really conflicted because i love like american wear up in london i love the blues brothers but now when i watch those movies it's gonna be like oh that's right john landis sucks he also is responsible for max landis which is another bad thing <laughs> but, uh, but yeah there's a really really amazing moment in the talk series i don't want to say too much more because if you have a shutter subscription you really should watch this but or the interview uh lloyd kaufman the head of trauma pictures who's you know makes low budget schlock like dirt low budget schlock and they interview him like saying, when you when you have no money, you know how do you how do you be safe on a film set? And he points to a, a sign that he has posted every single film set, which is the three rules of making a movie with us: number one, protect people's lives; number two, protect people's property; and number three, in tiny tiny letters, make a good movie. Um, so when you have so it's you have other filmmakers like chiming in to explain like you know how just how irresponsible it was. And that, the episode's fascinating. The whole series is great. I think the, the, the actually this episode is probably the weakest because. Uh, the production um, wasn't nearly as plagued with chaos as uh, people think it was, but the other four episodes are all really, really uh, great watches. So that's uh, cursed films on a shutter. Uh, Damn, I don't have order. shutter and I want to see uh, this. Peter, is, <laughs> Peter, get not, shutter. It's like the ch- it's yeah. the cheapest streaming service. It's so five, worth it. Five bucks a month. You can, you can unsubscribe after you watch it. Okay, maybe I'll do that. Uh, the hoarder. It's on Amazon Prime. It's a Movie uh, set in a um, in a uh, storage. Uh, so, what's the name? Uh, goodness gracious! Storage unit place where you have storage units. <laughs> where where they film storage wars? Yeah, it's one of those. <laughs> yeah. they, clearly, they clearly built one corridor of storage units and refill it from many different angles. So I like there's more. It's about a crazy person in a storage unit hunting down other people who are trapped in there with him. And it's very bad. It stars Misha Barton, of all people. And halfway through the movie, that's what my wife says, why is everybody's accent so weird? Why is nobody in this movie clearly American other than Misha Barton? And we look it up. It was filmed in London. And all the actors are like English actors doing the worst American accents. Uh, it's a hoarder. It's very bad. Uh, but watchable enough. And also short. Uh, that's on Amazon Prime. Also on Amazon Prime, Paramount Activity 3. Uh, I watched the first one a few weeks ago. Discussed it here. Three, I don't like it as much, uh, but as, as far as like a fun house, spookathon, uh, good time, found footage horror movie, I like it quite a bit. Uh, I think the rotating fan with the camera attached to it is, is a very inspired gag. They get really good mileage out of it. Uh, like I said before, the odd number of promo activities are the good ones, and this is a good one. That's promo activity three. Don't watch four <laughs> or six or two. And... All right, here's my question. HT, uh, I feel like you're the most common person to ask this for. Have you seen Where the Heart Is? 
Yes, I have. I that was actually a movie I loved a lot as a kid, and um, before I knew who Natalie Portman was. But yeah, that's a a one that I'm fond of. Yeah, this was on late night television while I was a, while I was painting miniatures. My wife was watching it. It's a movie that was on VHS in my home. My sister used to watch it, but I never paid attention to it until now. This movie's insane. HD. It's like a it's like a Gonzo crazy soap opera that jam packs every scene full of increasing craziness while playing all completely straight. Do you were you aware that this movie's made by psychopaths when you watched it when you were younger? When I saw it, I was very young, so the only thing I remember was Natalie Portman is really pretty, and she had a baby in a Walmart, and that's the only thing I remember about it. Oh, that movie! Yeah, it opens with babies in a Walmart, but then it has people being it has like a rise and fall of a country singer, uh, people killed by tornadoes, uh, sexual assault against children. Um, oh my goodness! Uh, uh, people being run over by trains. It goes places. Um, that's where the heart is. It's it's um, I can't recommend it, but it's if you watched it as a kid and remember like this tearjerker Natalie Portman drama, it's actually made by psychopaths. It's actually one of the craziest movies I've ever seen. I'm not sure if it's streaming anywhere, but it did pop up on late night television somewhere. Uh, finally, this again. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's actually it. streaming on um, Disney Plus. Maybe what really? Hold on. Really? I, I get the feeling that my roommate was watching it recently on a streaming service. Maybe it wasn't. It was somewhere else. Uh, but, yeah, I, I don't know where it's streaming, actually. Never mind. Not Disney+. Plus, But uh, you can probably find it somewhere. <laughs> we'll, we'll figure that out. Finally, I finished The Outsider. Not, it took me a long time to finish it. Not because it was bad. Because after episode four, we just fell off. We just... Uh, Episode five happened. We we felt we said we'll watch it next week, and we, we never did. We watched uh, the final stretch of episodes. We watched episodes five through ten on like two sittings, and I liked it. I think it's actually an improvement on the Stephen King novel. Uh, it makes a lot of really sweeping changes, uh, all of them for the better, at least for you know a television adaptation. I think Ben Mendelsohn is really good here. Cynthia Erivo, uh, her again after Bad Times at Royale, really good here. Uh, I feel like there's some choices here that don't quite. Uh, come through as much as I want them to. As the book is very much a straightforward, you know, suspense horror thriller, and I feel like this one, uh, the TV adaptation, is trying really hard to um, make a grander point, perhaps about how you know a supernatural, you know, f- uh, tragedy devouring monster has found a perfect place to hide in modern American society, where we, where tragedy happens so much we write it off, so it can sort of lurk unseen inside of that. And I feel like if that's the intention, it's maybe two-thirds of the way baked. It's not quite there. I wish it was there a little bit more. But I do think that as a as a horror thriller series, The Outsider really is excellent, even if the middle chapters are maybe a little flabby. Uh, Chris, I know we talked about this when you first came out. You reviewed it for us. Did the, did the ending stick to landing for you? I can't remember if we talked about this in the show or not. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I liked it overall. Like you, I think it's it's better than the book. Um, I do think there this should have been shorter i forget how many episodes it was it like eight i feel like it should have been like it's 10 it should be like seven yeah it should be like yes like four to seven like 10 like there there are long stretches where characters are like just driving to get food and while while i appreciate them trying to make it like down to earth and show like these nuts and bolts things like there really didn't need to be a scene where two characters like drive across the county to get wings or something like that like it's like you could probably cut that out but Overall, the cast is really good. Ben Mendelsohn is, is so great. He's great in everything, but he, he's great in this. And, uh, you know, the ending sort of kind of fizzles, but I kind of feel like 
that's the fault of the book because the book ending kind of fizzles too. But overall, it was pretty good, but it should have been shorter. Ben, what have you been watching? So I finished watching Never Have I Ever, which is the uh, Netflix series that was created by Mindy Kaling. Uh, last week, we talked a little bit about this. I had only seen the first episode, and HC had seen the whole thing, and she was raving about it and really enjoyed it. And I am happy to say that I also really, really love this series. I think it's one of the best uh, Netflix original series that exists on the platform. So I give it my highest, highest recommendation. Um, I think it's I saw some outlet write a piece about how it's sort of like a great uh, Mother's Day kind of show like a perfect stealth Mother's Day series. And since this past weekend was Mother's Day, that seemed uh, appropriate. And um, it really is like the the show is supposed to be about this relationship that this girl is having with her classmates and her love life and all that kind of stuff. But it ends up being more insular by the end and um, sort of turns a little bit more inward and, and uh, deals a little bit more with her family life and family situation. And it's just so great. It's the perfect distillation of everything that, Mindy Kaling has done well as a writer. So that is Never Have I Ever. It's on Netflix right now. Definitely check that out if you've not watched it. Uh, I also watched Deliverance for the first time. This is the 1972 movie uh, produced and directed by John Borman, who did Excalibur and a bunch of other films. This one stars John Voight, Burt Reynolds, Ned Beatty, and Ronnie Cox, who I had no idea that this was Ronnie Cox in this movie. The, like, the idea of Deliverance has loomed large in my life for... I don't know, probably 20 years at this point, and I've just never seen it. The whole uh, dueling banjos guitar thing um, is like one of the most famous things from this movie. And I like tried to learn how to play guitar when I was 15 or something. I play a little bit, but I'm not very good. But um, like when, yeah, when I was around that age, I sort of like learned how to play some of the dueling banjos stuff. And I knew it was from this movie, but I didn't really know much about this movie. Um, Ronnie Cox is... A character actor who has been in a ton of stuff like RoboCop and Total Recall and Beverly Hills Cop 2 and and all that, you know, the the first two Beverly Hills Cop movies anyway. Um, and I had no idea that he was a part of this cast, which uh, has John Voight and Burt Reynolds as like the, the two, I guess, primary leads. But the movie is about these guys who uh, I think are from Atlanta and they go out into the woods and they want to do this sort of canoe trip down this... A uh, river that is about to get destroyed. This whole area of the land is about to get destroyed because a dam is going to be coming up and there's going to be like a, a for, sort of a forced man-made lake situation that sort of wipes out this whole uh, section of the land and they want to sort of return to their nature roots and, and experience the land. And then they come across these sort of backwoods hillbilly guys who um, end up doing some awful, awful things to them. So I don't know how much you guys know about what happens in Deliverance, but uh, it's definitely a, a movie that requires like a, a trigger warning, I think. Um, it's It has some pretty uh, unnerving sexual assault stuff going on in there. But um, overall, I think I... It's weird to say I enjoyed the movie, but it, it definitely feels like the kind of rough-and-tumble... Um, like uh, difficult to make uh, movie out in the elements kind of thing. Like, you know, Mad Max Fury Road has that vibe where it's like, you can really feel that the, the people out there were actually doing the things that they're depicted uh, doing on screen. Deliverance has uh, sort of a less intense version of that with all of the, the water stunts and things like that, that happen all the way through. But uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, aside from like some incredibly uncomfortable moments, uh, I, I enjoyed this movie overall. Has anybody else here seen deliverance? You guys know what I'm talking about? 
Yeah, the movie's really good. It's also, as you said, uh, really intense. And there's probably the most famous scene in the movie that we can't talk about on this podcast. Um, it's kind of scene that would send up every single movie studio red flag today. They would just flat out refuse to let the movie be released with that scene in it. Mm-hmm. So it's just it's really upsetting because it feels like a product of its time and that it's literally a film that would not get made ever today. And yeah. it's really upsetting for that reason. Yeah, that's totally true. And it's not streaming anywhere. I watched it on Turner classic movies, um, but it, it is available to rent on all of the different platforms. So if you want to give deliverance a shot, you can do that. Uh, ben, and then, uh, yes. Have you seen Southern comfort by any chance? No. What is that? I don't think I've ever heard of that. All right. So Southern comfort, it, that's actually streaming on uh, Amazon prime right now. And it's, it's sort of like the same movie, but not, um, it's about from 1981. Yeah, it's about these Army Reserve guys and, like, Powers Booth is in it, you know, all those cool male character actors. And they're on, like, a training exercise in, like, the bayou. And they uh, they all have, like, blanks in their guns because you know, it's like a training exercise. They don't have, like, real guns. But these locals see them with their guns and they think, like, they're coming to, like, invade their, you know, backwoods bayou uh, huts. And they start, like, hunting the army guys down oh, wow. and it, it's 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 a really it, it hasn't it hasn't really aged well it's not a very pc movie but it, it's it's very entertaining and very violent and it's about it's sort of like you know uh, a parable for the vietnam war because it's you know guys in the jungle with guns that are useless and mm-hmm. they're getting picked off one by one so now that you've seen deliverance i recommend checking that out that's on out because they're they're very similar movies about manly men being hunted down by backwoods dudes huh interesting yeah i will definitely add this to my list yeah walter hill directed that that's fascinating yeah, uh, yeah i second this one too ben it's 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 something else it's a trip <laughs> okay uh yeah i'll definitely check that out and then last night uh my wife and i just were like channel surfing which is something we almost never do these days but uh noticed that wonder woman was on tnt so we watched that um which i think was the first time we'd seen it since theaters and um you know, I, I don't think my uh, thoughts on the movie have changed very much since I saw it in 2017. Um, all, all of the things that I loved, I still love. All the things, I, the little flaws that I, I found in it, I still think are there. But um, guys, have, has there ever been a movie, a superhero movie, where the two leads were as gorgeous as Gal Gadot and Chris Pine? Like, I'm thinking maybe The Rocketeer, like Billy Campbell and Jennifer Connelly, uh, could give them a run for their money. But um, man, just watching that movie again is just like, uh, it is like a shrine to true, to true, uh, two truly gorgeous people. So um, yeah, props to them. <laughs> Mask Azuro, man. Antonio Madera's Catherine Dita Jones. There's your, your sex. Yeah, I guess, I guess that is kind of like a superhero movie. <laughs> Even, I mean, yeah, it's it's close. I guess it's a comic book movie because I think there's there've been Zorro comics or maybe yeah. Zorro he's, initiated he's a superhero. In like Batman's a superhero. You know, he wears a cape and a mask. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> okay, let's move on to HT. What have you been watching this week? I watched Celine and Julie Go Boating, which is a 1974 French surrealist movie directed by Jacques Rivette. And uh, this is the movie that was the inspiration for uh, Desperately Seeking Susan. And um, I kind of, I came into this with my expectations for French New Wave films, which I can, I tend to either like, 
I like or love, but they sometimes with their uh, bucking of narrative expectations will be a little bit overlong or um, a little on the just kind of uh, meandering side. And uh, Selena and Julie Go Boating is over three hours long, so I kind of felt like it would be on the on that side of something that I wouldn't really enjoy. But I really, really love this movie. It's just kind of this relaxed hangout movie with uh, the two stars, um, Juliette, Juliette Berteau and Dominique Laborier, who I just like really enjoyed to watch um, every scene, every frame that they were on, just because they were just so charismatic and so fun to watch. And um, it follows a, a woman who's kind of this conservative libra- librarian who uh, sees another woman uh, walking through a park and is she's dropping all of these items, a scarf, a hat, um, some sunglasses, and she starts picking up these items to try to give them back to her, but ends up just kind of following her around the city and watching her go about throughout her day. There are a lot of um, inspiration from Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland to kind of has that beginning of going down the rabbit hole and it does have this sort of labyrinthine labyrinthine structure where it starts to go one way in which these two uh, women uh, uh, meet and they move in together and and strike up this kind of codependent relationship and then it goes in a completely opposite direction uh, in which sort of psychotropic candies are involved and they start to find themselves uh, inserted into this sort of weird melodrama in this haunted house or something and it's a it's a bizarre film but i it's just such a fun almost like relaxed lazy movie to watch that um despite the three-hour runtime i i really enjoyed watching and um this is a movie that is streaming on the criterion channel right now um and just yeah don't let the um the french new wave and the runtime kind of deter you it's it's a really enjoyable and entertaining film and again like the two leads are just so so entertaining to watch and um i i really like this movie so that's selena and julie go boating and that is streaming on the criterion channel now uh i also watched uh cinema paradiso for the first time oh wow and this is like yeah, one of my I, favorite movies i, yeah, I am I excited to, say, to hear i recall like this is peter's one of peter's favorite movies right yeah I'm excited to hear. Do you know which version you watched? Because I'm not sure if you know this, but this movie was when it was originally released in Italy. It was like like 150 minutes long or something, and then it had like poor box office. And Harvey Weinstein took his scissor fingers to it, and then it got cut down for release. Uh, but that original version won, like I think, the Cannes Film Festival. Maybe I don't know. I could be wrong. It, 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 it also won the Oscar for best foreign language film I think. and best for yeah and that but i think it might have also won a special jury prize at the can that year but uh but that was not the version that was released and then in later they released a director's cut that was like even longer like 175 minutes or something so do you know which cut you watched i watched the director's cut uh, it was on hbo go although i was a little bit i the the format, uh, the dimensions for this movie, I felt like were cut off because it was the um, yeah. What, what, HBO I, I, does this sometimes. HBO yeah, is I, bad with uh, aspect ratios. Yeah, the aspect ratio was off because I could tell at some points that half of the screen was missing, and I was like, okay, this is strange. I thought this was the director's cut, um, but yes, I watched the director's cut, not the uh, theatrical version that was released to the U.S. And I enjoyed this film. It's um. It is kind of like it's a it's a movie that follow it's a coming of age film that follows this young boy in um 
uh, post-World War II Italy, uh, whose love for uh, movies kind of drives him, uh, drives his drives him throughout like his childhood and it's kind of like this one through line uh, as he goes through all of the ups and downs of, of adolescence and everything. And uh, it's, it's set within the framework of him as an adult director who is uh, thinking back on his life and um, the tragedies and pangs of first love and all those kind of things. And I enjoyed this film. I couldn't help but think of uh, the similarities to Pedro Almodovar's um, Pain and Glory, which has a similar sort of premise. It's about a director who is kind of uh, aging and later in life and stuck in a rut uh, creatively and starts to think about his own childhood and how he um, kind of grew up in that uh, cinema house, that cinema house and uh, how that love for film really just kind of inspired him and, um, uh, was just like this one constant throughout his his childhood, and I I like cinema paradiso, but I I feel like some of the more sentimental uh, 1980 1980s uh, gl- uh, gl- gloss of it kind of yeah. Uh, was a little, it didn't really hit me as much as, I, I don't want to keep making comparisons, but I really, really love Pain and Glory. And I just felt like that was such an emotional and passionate and uh, movie that really stuck with me. And I did like Cinema Paradiso and I was really struck um, by the imagery um, as well as I adored Ennio Morricone's score. Like, wow, wow. I love, love, loved his score and was just kind of swept away whenever like the strings rose. And he really just, he just um, made this most romantic score to go along with this film. So um, I liked it. I can't say that I, I, I would love it as much as you, but I, I really enjoyed Cinema Paradiso, which is streaming on HBO Go now. I, I will agree that it being made in the 80s, it does have a, a little bit of the 80s sheen to it, which uh, doesn't quite hold up today, <laughs> I think. But um, it, it does feel like a product of its time a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. Uh, I would highly recommend it. If, if anybody out there that loves movies, that loves Covenant of Age uh, films, go check it out. I don't know which version to recommend to you because I remember watching, I think, the most recent one, which uh, had like an additional ending where the guy goes back home. And I don't know. It was a way more Hollywood ending from what I remember. And I did not like that at all. Um, but so, yeah. Anyways, I think uh, this ending, he also goes back home. So, yeah, he, like, returns and all of his family and everyone sort of welcomes him back. But, yeah, <laughs> it's hard to talk about endings. But, like, is there anything with the, the girl that he loved in the ending? Um, No. No, not, okay. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, you did see the, uh, the, the longer cut then, which I would not recommend for people. Anyways, <laughs> um, what else have you been watching? Um, I got hooked on Itaewon Class, which is a K-drama on Netflix. I started up a couple months ago and was intrigued but never kind of picked it up again. And I watched a few more episodes and just got hooked and just binged through um, the entire series. Um, it's a Itaewon is a, a neighborhood in Seoul. And it's a neighborhood that's known for being like this really, um, really big on nightlife and having a lot of international people and just kind of being a sort of melting pot of people in general. And uh, this drama itself is about a young uh, ex-con who um, start who opens a bar in Itaewon and kind of um, his long, his sort of 
ongoing war with this big food corporation that had kind of put, had uh, helped put him in jail in the first place. And um, it's it is very much I really enjoyed like that. It's not really a romantic drama. It's actually more of a sort of corporate uh, almost warfare type drama. It's it's really interesting. It's kind of like a cross between the revenge plot of Count of Monte Cristo with the corporate schemings of Succession, and uh, it does kind of follow this uh, this ex con uh, who and like his sort of misfit band of employees as he goes up against this big Goliath of a food corporation, um, the boss of which has like a personal vendetta against him. So it's a uh, it's really it's really fun to watch, and it's just just a really um it's really fascinating to look at like this um sort of counterculture part of South Korea and uh goes into some sort of more progressive issues it has a character who is a transgender character and it goes into her um transition which is really interesting and it kind of also brings to light some of the more backwards views that a lot of like Koreans have towards LGBT, the LGBT community, and um, it also features a you know a very diverse cast in terms of in terms of a K drama. It also has a uh, um, mixed Africa uh, mixed black Korean, uh, which is very rare to see in a K drama as well. So um, I I enjoyed a lot. It's um, definitely I don't know if it, I would say this is a good drama to to watch if you have never seen a K drama before because it does have some of the problems that I frequently have with K-dramas and that it kind of tends towards melodramatic bloat. But it's really interesting. It's a fast watch. I think it's 16 episodes and it's streaming on Netflix now. So that's Itaewon Class. And uh, the last thing is uh, an update on my community rewatch. Uh, I have made it through season four and I've uh, gotten to season five, which I have to say is um, a lot better than I remember. I, I think that like, I just it's just so interesting watching season four and just kind of being really like it's not terrible as unwatchable, but then it just being it's just kind of forgettable and uh, goes in one ear and goes one out, goes out. But it's just kind of a pale imitation of what had come before. And then season five really is a return to form because immediately in the first episode of season five, repilot, it's just back to those rapid fire jokes um, that are crammed into like 30 seconds. And it's just really funny. And um, there's like an energy back um, that feels like, again, early season community. Um, but it does sort of fall off once Donald Glover leaves the um, the series. It's kind of amazing how quickly it does. You're like, wow, it just he really has just brought so much to that dynamic um, uh, of the of the cast. And uh, so it's a little bit sad, like ha- having him gone and seeing how much of a hole he left uh, with the show. But it does. I will say, like, if you. This is kind of directed to you, Ben, but also to everyone else. If you are not really sure about like watching, rewatching the entirety of Community because of how much it drops off after season three, season five is good. Um, I also uh, will have, to, I will say that like the episode that they're doing the table reading from um, that's airing this Monday is uh, from season five, and it's one of the best written episodes of the show. It's just, it's just so funny and so smart and sharp and, again, rapid-fire um, dialogue and jokes. And I think that, like, yeah, it is one of, like, the best written episodes of, of the show, I think. And um, uh, it's just uh, it's it's fun to see, like, those those bright glimmers of the, the genius that, com- that a community is, uh, even when it starts to kind of fall off again. So that's my update on my community rewatch. Very cool. Let's move on to what we've been eating. This past week when I went down to Huntington Beach, we stopped at Knott's Berry Farm, 
which has reopened their berry marketplace and they're selling some of the goodies there. Uh, we wanted to record a video on us. Uh, we've been doing these videos of us eating like treats from Japan and, and treats from, you know, different places and uh, at Knott's Berry Farm. Uh, Knott's is famous for their boysenberry treats because uh, Walter Knott's and his wife, uh, Mrs. Knott's, they, they, well, it was originally a farm and their big export was these boysenberries, which is a combination of different, a bunch of different berries. And uh, they, they had this store on the side of the road that people would stop at and then eventually became a chicken dinner restaurant that had a long line. So they built this like ghost town that entertain people while they were in line and then became a theme park. Uh, well, so this berry place market is back open and we stopped there and we bought a bunch of boysenberry treats, uh, ranging from like a boysenberry brisket beef jerky to some boysenberry taffy and some, uh, a ton of stuff. Like I spent, <laughs> spent like 80 bucks there to, uh, buy stuff for this video, including, a funnel cake kit. So we, we because the Knott's is known for their funnel cakes, where they they make a funnel cake and they put some boysenberry puree on top. And uh, so we we tried all the boysenberry treats. We recorded a video that's going to be up on Monday, and then later next week uh, we also recorded a video where we attempted to make a Knott's funnel cake to uh, varying degrees of success. I will say this that making a funnel cake is not as easy as it looks in that like it takes like some precision on like when you're pouring that batter into the oil like you really need to get it like very stringy so that like when it's boiling like you you like we ended up pouring way too much and it became kind of like this big glob of like almost like a pancake of some kind where you really need the air to be in there so that you get the crispiness of like the strings to make what you know is funnel cake anyways that video will be up next week you can check that out uh we also on the way back from uh the dog beach my friend was like uh there's a slater's 50 50 near there which i've heard about from years uh i used to be like when i went to San Diego Comic-Con, people would take a journey over to Slater's 5050. This is a famous burger place um, that I think might be California only. I mean, who knows? Uh, I did not look up that information, so I'm making assumptions. Uh, they are famous for their 5050 patties, which is a mixture of beef and bacon. And I've never eaten there, and Kitra had never eaten there, so we stopped on the, uh, we ordered online, and we did a curbside pickup and we ate the, our burgers there and uh, a lot of people love these Slater's 50 50 burgers I'll say I, I don't think I was a huge fan of like it, I, I love bacon but like these burgers tasted like too bacony for my taste like too smoky uh Brad have you ever had Slater's 50 50 I feel like if anybody on this podcast has had Slater's 50 50 it would probably be you no, this is the first time I'm hearing about it. And next time I come to Cali, I'll definitely have to go try them out. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure I could totally recommend them, but everybody seems to love them. But uh, so maybe also, you know, during this pandemic, you're you're not getting the top quality <laughs> cooking and stuff. You know, maybe, maybe it was just like uh, we got a bad batch, too. Anyways, uh, but it was good. It just wasn't great. Uh, Brad, what have you been eating this week? Uh, I got my hands on a couple new uh, variations of 
uh, Pepperidge Farms Milano cookies. They have a caramel macchiato and Irish cream. Uh, and both are really good. The, the caramel macchiato ones have a nice mix of caramel and that kind of uh, coffee flavor that mixes well with the Milano-style cookie. And Irish cream, I'm somebody who really likes Bailey's Irish cream and making um, certain alcoholic drinks, you know, with them. And uh, they've, you know, captured the flavor of Irish cream in these cookies. Obviously, it doesn't have, you know, an alcoholic taste, but it does have that, uh, you know, creamy sweet flavor to it that may, uh, also goes well with the Milano cookie. Um, but the thing that I was most excited uh, to get my hands on recently was Dunkaroos, which are back from the dead. Um, if you weren't a 90s kid, maybe you don't know Dunkaroos. Dunkaroos was this uh, little, you know, a snack pack of cookies that you dipped into either chocolate or uh, confetti-style uh, white frosting. And they were all the rage in the 90s. And they stuck around for a good long while. They, apparently, they were actually around uh, in the United States until about 2012 when they were discontinued. But then... They were still around in Canada for another few years after that. And I remember hearing about people who had a, you know, a kind of a, a craving to go back to the 90s, uh, having them shipped in from Canada because uh, it's the only place you could get them. But now, with nostalgia being all the rage, Dunkaroos are officially back. Right now, you can only get them at 7-Eleven, but they'll be available everywhere uh, later in the summer. Right now, they only have the confetti white frosting uh, available and so that's what I picked up. And man, they're still good. The, fr the fr it's it's the frosting tastes exactly like I remember it. Um, I'm a little bummed be because the chocolate one was my favorite one, but these are are still good. I do wish. Um, and honestly, I don't remember because I, I know the chocolate one had these like graham cracker style cookies, if I remember correctly. Um, but the what these with the white frosting, they're they're only, they're more of just like a, a regular. Uh, generic cookie and they don't have any shapes anymore it's just the circle with the the d logo on it but the the they were just as good as i remember um and so yeah if you if you're craving dunkaroos from your childhood uh you can hopefully find them at 7-eleven but i imagine once people hear about that they're gonna just go and get them all <laughs> I, i've already been seeing people on my instagram feed like searching all over for these and buying like the entire stock when they when they find them so so it seems like uh, they're popular. They are, yeah. It's it's always fun when things like this come come back. Yeah, I didn't even know they were gone, which is kind of crazy. Um, it, it making me crave them. Uh, seeing your Instagram post about that. Okay, so that brings us to the end of today's Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast in iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we will see you on Monday. Hey. Hey, Peter. Uh, Peter. Yeah. Hey, hey Peter. Uh, <laughs> Peter, hey. Hey, hey, hey Peter. Peter. I, Peter. Yeah. Hey. Hey, hey, Peter. Uh, <laughs> I've opened up their gantuan book. Shock for torch, repost, caustic quips, implied put downs by Lewis A. Safian. Above the page, 214 nicknames. <clears throat> ben, Ben Pearson. They call him the butcher because he's a real cut up. Hey. HT, 
They they call her the baseball girl. She was thrown out at home. Oh. I mean, that's technically true. She was put in the basement. I am. Chris, they call him Bean. Anyone can string him. Sure. I'll go with that. Brad, they call him Blacksmith. He shoes his daughter's boyfriends out of the house. When was this book written again? That the blacksmith joke? (laughs) Well, Peter, they call they call you the bottler. When you go for a fling, (laughs) no one can stop her. Wait, what? What? I didn't even. When you go, they call you the bottler. When you go for a fling, no one can stop her. Why do you ask him to repeat that, Peter? (laughs) Just pretend you understand. Yeah, that's part of the bottler one. I get it. That's open, and I changed the gender without reading it beforehand. So technically, it should be to call her the bottler. No one can stop her. Stop her. (laughs) So, but I'm just keeping it as it is. They call Peter bottler when he goes for a fling. No one can stop her. Wow. Wow. Okay. Have a good weekend, everybody. Hey, Peter. (laughs) What? What, What, Jacob? Happy Friday. Thank you.